Hello and welcome back to Blood and Ashes. This is episode 18 where we'll cover, drumroll, book 3 of The Wheel of Time, The Dragon Reborn, specifically from the prologue through to chapter 5, not the whole book. Uh, I'm your host Mo and I'm joined as always by my distinguished friends Jody, Guten Morgen, and Billy. Buonasera. <laughs> no! <laughs> There's only so many languages to go through. <laughs> Excellent effort, Billy. Love it. Uh, Almost as exciting as uh, hearing what language Billy and Jody are going to greet us in every week is the fact that we are starting a new book, and I am neck deep in that uh, that Christmas morning feeling that I mentioned in our last episode. <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but I remember Rand taking Kalandor at the end of this book and not much else. That's more than I remember. No, I, I remember a bit more. I think I remember that because that's the cover. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a, we're covering a good one. One thing that is immediately apparent from the start of this book is that we're going to get a lot more point of view from people that are not Randall Thor. Um, so that actually prompted me to go check, uh, you know, there are those chapter summaries with the, the percentages of points of view in each book and in the series uh -huh. overall and that sort of thing. And this book is dominated by three characters. Perrin, obviously, as mm -hmm. we start off with mostly him, Matt and Egwene. Mm. Oh, you've switched to Egwene. Well, I'm trying mm. to phase in all the, you know, proper pronunciations. I will definitely slip back into Egwene within the first couple of minutes of her actually entering this the scene again. So you're going uh, Egwene? I'm going to try. I'm resolving to try to meet the pronunciation guide in the back of the books for the first time in more than 20 years since I read them <laughs> originally. I looked last night. It's not Pedron. It's Pedron. <laughs> Falm will always be flame for me. <laughs> Just, oh, the struggle is real. The struggle is I, real. I have fully accepted uh, Kyrian, um, and yes. I'm halfway there with Demane. Uh, I refuse Demane. It'll always be Deman and Egwene. <laughs> I'll switch. Like like I said, Pedron. It's uh, Pedron. Pedron Nayal. Neal, shit, I still can't get it. I read it last night. <laughs> totally forgot it again. <laughs> I'm willing to mess around with that, but there's some core characters that I'm not messing with. Yeah. Look, it, well, back to the point that I was trying to make before oh, we sorry. pulled Carry apart on. my, my <laughs> correct pronunciation of Egwene. Um, the, the split of uh, points of view is 28% of the book is Perrin, 28% of the book is Egwene. Mm -hmm. And 24% is Matt, and only 8% is Rand. Well, he had, he had a lot of coverage the first two books. Exactly. And 15% so were... was Apple Carts. 15% Almond Bunt. We did, like as you mentioned, Will, we, we did talk a bit about how the vast majority of the first two books are from Rand's point of view. It sort of gives away the fact that he is obviously the Dragon Reborn. He is the main protagonist. Yes, there's three boys from Emersfield and everything. And at the end of The Great Hunt, we were talking about how, you know, Matt, we haven't really seen an awful lot oh, of char character progression. Still coming, and I think that's the best part. 
There is, but now we're actually starting because now, okay, cool, we get it. Rand, at the end of book two, accepts the fact that he's the dragon reborn, blah, 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 blah. Now there's room for the other characters to grow as well. And now to get all this time with the three other main kids, mm-hmm. you know, quote unquote kids from Eamon's Field is awesome. That's really, I cannot wait to get really into Matt's story. I think Perrin's story l- leaves a bit of a sour taste in most people's minds or tongues i don't know how you would phrase that <laughs> but because of because of all the winter's hearts and you know the slog stuff where he's just you know missioning through the snow after fail for books and books and books mm. but Egwene's story also epic epic yeah so i'm super excited about like shifting to the other characters now and padding them out a bit well it's uh it is what we are here for it, it is it is it is the purpose we will get to it in a moment but before we do that, it's our favorite part of the show. Time for some callbacks. Yes. Um, let's be pedantic, people. <laughs> actually, less pedantry this time. It's more no. just revisiting some of the themes that we, or some of the scenes and themes that we covered in the, in the previous episode. Um, and we got a couple of people that actually wrote in. I, at one point, also posed a question on Twitter, which we'll get to when we get to that, that topic. But we had a message come in from, now this is a, a very difficult name to pronounce, and um, they sent me a phonetic pronunciation of their name in case I was going to read it out on the podcast. So I'm going to take a crack at it. Uh, Aisha Jean wrote in. And said that they heard, so they wanted to make it clear that this is not their theory. They are not a a, a credible source here. But they had heard or read somewhere that the wound from Ishmael's staff was created with a true power. Mm. And that's why Nynaeve couldn't heal it fully. Or why any of the Aes Sedai can't do anything about it. Because the nature of the power that actually caused it is not of the one power. Or even of, you know, again this plane of reality Hmm. which i thought is a cool thought like i've never thought of you know you only really start thinking about the true power later when moradin has made his true appearance and you can see the sar floating across his eyes and there's a lot more focus on the true power um which i just thought was fun that's i I like that the question i posed on twitter was whether other people thought that turek was cut in half and at the end of it, after the reading that I've done online and what people responded with, um, it's pretty much like it's un- undecided. It's 50-50. No. Some it's, people it's think it is. It's not undecided. <laughs> it has been decided. <laughs> we decided it two weeks ago. <laughs> well, Rob from Melker Talks, he wrote in and he said that he is in the camp of, yes, he was cut in half. Um, and then we had a, a new fan who goes by Amiss the Wise One on Twitter. Uh, she says that she thought always thought it was a disembowelment. And uh, she is a sci-fi and uh, fantasy mm. aficionado and I think also writer and mentioned that she doesn't think it's that it's not the Darth Maul slice in half. And I was surprised. I was like, oh, wow, did you get the Darth Maul reference for my episode? And she said, mm. no, she hasn't listened to it. So she also made that uh. connection just from when I said, that's amazing that you used the same example we did. And she said, well, it's just a commonly used trope and, I, and she's familiar with it and mm. weighed in on the topic just from interacting with us on Twitter, Twitter without actually even listening to the episode. That's pretty neat. Um, I thought I would read just that little scene again because there's a couple words in there that I am going to use to make my final decision for myself, my own headcanon, to go either way. And it goes like this. Speaking of Rand, obviously he dropped to one knee, 
the blade slashing across. He did not need Turek's gasp or the feel of resistance to his cut to know. He heard two thumps and he turned his head knowing what he would see. He looked down the length of his blade, wet and red, to where the High Lord lay. Sword tumbled from his limp hand, a dark dampness staining the birds woven in the carpet under his body. Turek's eyes were open, but already filmed with death. Now, rad, <laughs> again, just to dip into the awesomeness of the previous episode. But the word resistance is noteworthy because, you know, Rand has a power wrought blade. Um, if you're slicing through someone's, you know, only uh, like stomach tissue for a disembowelment, you know, you wouldn't expect the resistance to be mentioned explicitly. Mm-hmm. I don't know. This is my assumption. Uh, the use of the word thumps. So it's not the sound of sloshing guts hitting the ground. <laughs> There's like two, two hard things hitting the ground causing a thump. And then the fact that Turak was already dead. You know, like he just hit the ground and he's already that this is not like a mortal wound. So if you think of like a gunshot wound to the stomach or something, they always say that that's a terrible way to die because, you know, sepsis and, you know, like it's it's agonizing and long and mm. takes a long time. A disembowelment. I mean, how many stories have you read and heard of people from in real life, like, you know, having their stomachs cut open and holding their own guts in with their mm. arm while they have to hike a number of miles out of the forest? Blah, blah. So like a disembowelment. It's an dead instant killing. Yeah, it wouldn't be an instant kill. It was a disembowelment was a uh, method of uh, torture because it was a torturous thing to go through. You didn't yes. just fall down in the noose and snap your neck and like, there we go. Shake, anyway, shake. <laughs> all this to say, I'm now firmly in the fantastical world of Rand Cut Him in Half. Yes, that's, that's, there we go. That's what I'm that's, settling on. That's the way. I concur. Now... We spent three hours on the last episode, so I'm not going to belabor that <laughs> yeah. point a bit anymore. But the move that Rand uses, River Undercuts the Bank, is used by Belal against Rand and almost decapitates Rand. And that led me down another little garden path. How many, if you guys had to guess, how many sword forms do you think are explicitly named in the series? Ooh. I'm going for 42. Really? As many uh, cards as there's in a deck, 52. 73. Oh. That's a lot. That's that's a Mortal Kombat move list. Yes, that's a lot of birds doing actions with their wings and wading <laughs> through different brush and shrubberies. <laughs> it's like a lot of, well, there's also a lot of flowery. Yeah, yeah balls, down. all kinds of animals. Yeah. Winds, moons, celestial bodies <laughs> rising over things. <laughs> but I was shocked at that number, 73, and they listed out online. I mean, you can go check. It's it's pretty impressive. All right. Um, I couldn't find anything on Ishmael's staff. You know, Joe, you were asking, what is the importance of the staff? What is the significance of him using a staff when he's a blade master? Why is he not using a sword? Couldn't find anything on that. So, obviously. No significance. The, all, all that tells me is that, I yes, exactly. I got a stupid theory that I could throw at that. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> no, think about it. The guy's still uh-huh. recovering from his burns and all of that. He's flaking mm-hmm. and getting better. Now, if anyone's really been burnt in the past, the last thing you want to do is swing a, a sword around. You you kind of have mm. a staff to lean on and walking because the cracking bits of your oh body would be hurting. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going with okay. staff because he's got to lean on it. For okay. support. And, Let's 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 say it's just he wasn't in a good state for that fight. No. 
Um, people seem to think that the sword melting when Rand uh, stabs Ishmael is not because Rand was channeling through the sword, but because of Ishmael's body and the the fire, you know, like the opening to a furnace behind his eyes and his mouth sometimes. People talk about that being a side effect of using the true power and that Rand putting the, like the only thing that could destroy the blade was the true power. So like, you know, Ishmael channeling the true power at that time is what destroyed the blade, mm. which is also not definitive, but another cool theory, just a cool mm-hmm. thing to, to consider. Again, the true power coming, you know, appearing very early in the book. I mean, it appears in the prologue of the first book, but um, you only really learn about what it is and what it means later. Oh, we also spoke about Fane and we wondered about whether he had actually used the dagger before. Uh, and he had. There was that chapter in The Great Hunt when he's got all the dark friends, you know, huddled mm. together and like jabbering crazily trying to prove their worth. And when he goes to sleep, he puts the dagger on top of the top chest. Of the chest. Mm. And he mentions there that uh, the blade was a better guard than Trolloc or human. They'd all seen what happened when he used it once. None would come within a span of that bared blade without his command and then reluctantly. Mm. Okay, that's right. So, so he had cut someone and turned them into a oozy black mess. An oozy black balloon. That would explain the th- absolute fear at that stage. Totally. And also the Trollocs eating them. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> there's that. There's that. Um, and then the last thing I wanted to talk about was just because I felt such, uh, such joy for or relief for Inktar when he got his, his salvation uh, I wanted to go look again at like how this man became a dark friend. And I went and I found that passage with his musings, uh, these sort of nihilistic uh, musings saying that when, you know, when they were riding South from, from Shinar, Loyal was busy talking about the nations that had sort of fallen away and disappeared. And uh, Inktar responds with, you say they failed builder. Yes, they failed. And what nation standing hold today will fail tomorrow? We are being swept away, humankind. Swept away like flotsam on a flood. How long until there is nothing left but the borderlands? And how long until we too go under? And there is nothing left but Trollocs and Madral all the way to the Sea of Storms. Like, he has a pretty bleak outlook of the world. And um, I thought it was important to remember that he was a good man that was just at the end of his tether. Like he was yep. just out of hope. He had lost all hope. Pour one out for Inktar. Pour one out for our dead homies. Yeah. <laughs> but now, the dragon reborn. Let's get to the good shit. Um, the prologue is called Fortress of the Light. And Vili... Why don't you take us through that one? Thank you. And it will always start with some prophecy. Mm -hmm. And his path shall be many, and who shall know his name? For he shall be born among us many times, in many guises, as it has been and ever will be, time without end. His coming shall be like the sharp edge of the plow, turning our lives in furrows. From out of the places where we lie in our silence, the breaker of bonds, the forger of change, the maker of futures, the unshaper of destiny, from the commentaries of the prophecies of the dragon. So not only are there prophecies, but there's commentaries on them as well. Several <laughs> books, commentaries on prophecies. 
This is the commentary on the commentary of the prophecy. <laughs> the commentary of the commentary. Anywho, the fortress of the light. And uh, this is where we leave our heroes in the past and hunt for the horn. And now we're getting all the reports coming in. And our first uh, scene is where uh, it's Pedro Nal, the head honcho of the White Cloaks, walking in his head honcho room, the Fortress of Light, where there's a big chair in the middle, a throne, and a lot of sort of him walking up and down, just the description of the room, all the banners of the people in the past that the children has conquered, stuck up in their dusty spots there, the the gold on the floor for their, their symbol that their holy sun thingy. And anywho, he's uh <laughs> shows how little you care for them. <laughs> yeah. The holy sun thingy. They got some golden sun and some fancy place and old man. There's a lot of uh description about how old he is. He's even like it seems like a skeleton to me now. <laughs> anyway, so uh Jared has now <laughs> ridden from all the way from Tomenhead back to come and report to him, our child buyer. And in his reporting, he has uh, he also brought him a rolled up one of these hand-drawn um, news articles from mm-hmm. the great dragon in the sky. And uh, just basically the children had fought in their battle reporting back from the death of uh, obviously Gia from Bonald that uh, they rode up against these armies of creatures and Aes Sedai, and definitely the Aes Sedai killed the children. And yeah, 50, it took 50 of them to bring one down, but they were all basically killed by the Aes Sedai. After the report back of uh, Bayar, there's not anything particular that stood out to me. Just witches, dragon reborn, everyone's dark friends, everyone's fighting each other. There's some who band behind the dragon. There's some who don't. He leaves the room. And then um, Caradin. What's his first name now? <laughs> Jacob. Not even going to try and pronounce his first name. <laughs> <laughs> it's Jacob. Jacob Caradin. So he comes in. Um, and he is reporting back basically his whole story or his version of events. Mm. Which is uh, he was pretty much laid in for you know, the method of, or the way that he conducted him, the question is. N- Niall asks him um, what happened, and he's talking about all these dark friends, but Niall says, you also said that Jeffrey Bornhold was a dark friend. Mm. So are you expecting me to believe that a dark friend went and attacked a bunch of dark friends? Like, well, what's your story? Because Niall's trying to, he's trying to put Jacob Carradine off guard because he's about to say something to Carradine, that mm. is borderline treasonous. Yes. So he 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 pushes him into a, a bit of a corner about his accusations. And also Perrin has now come up twice already in this conversation, like the dark friend from the two rivers with um uh child buyer, and yeah. now as well with Caradin, that now it's the two rivers that's come in there quite a few times that stood out to him. But uh, he then says now the, the only way, like they, they're not going to move against any of the people who's backing the dragon because there's now little pockets of people. There will be no moves made. There'll be no killing of the dragon. Even if an Aes Sedai decides to take him, he'll have to work his knives in the dark 
and take out an Aes Sedai, take out one of the witches, because they need this lion to run free. And he's, and this is the the grand scheme, or it's almost could be conceived as traitorous, is to purposefully know that is the end. I suppose to let him loose, let people suffer under his insanity, so that they can, you know, unite the banner of the good side of mm. it, and now be the force who marches to Tarmangaidan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so yes, that is uh, pretty much where his plan uh, or his revelation of his plan that he wants to make. And he sends Caridon off, and then uh, he's joined by a new other bloke. <laughs> Some other bloke. Some other bloke. Audi. Some rando. Some rando. Just wangled his way in there, and he's even got access to his little secret passage. Wormed his way, I might say. Wormed his way into it. What does his name mean in the old tongue? Worm, wormwood? Wormwood. Wormwood, mm, it yes. Means Grima Wormtongue. Not Wormtongue. now we all know it's bad and fine so Mm -hmm. our uh, and this okay now this got me thinking so we spoke quite in depth about how fane was taunting rand to come to terminate for this big Mm -hmm. you know face off showdown yeah and when the showdown didn't go quite the plan that he wanted to he's still going through with his whole plan that you know, talking about the two rivers into uh, Padron's ear now. Like the two rivers, all these people from the two rivers, dark friend. And it's like, oh, he knows Rand at Althorn. He sort of, uh, he was caught looking at the rolled up, you know, poster banner thing that came with uh, Child Buyer. And he's like, oh, no, he's Rand Althor from the two rivers. And then he's like, oh, well, What's this? Is he from the two rivers? What's what about this other dark friend, the Perrin? And he's like, yeah. And then there's Matt as well. So he's planting that dark friend. Niall says something about the two rivers, like he's got two. He's got two friends as well. And Audith says, oh, would that be Matram Corthon or Perrin Ibarra? Mm-hmm. And Niall recognizes Perrin's name from what Child Byar had so vehemently tried to convey to him. It was Perrin. He betrayed us. It was this dark friend. Yeah. Yep. So uh, that is basically old Fane worked his way into high places yet again, very quickly. And I don't know how that, how, the, how did he get there that quickly? I would guess through supernatural abilities. <laughs> yes. Oh, wait. He's, he can use the ways. I mean, it's not his travel there that really surprises me. Amadisia is just south of Terrebonne. It's, it's like right there. It's at the southern tip of the Mountains of Mist. Um, and that's where the White Cloaks are based. But what is shocking is how quickly he has come all the way to the top mm. of the Children of the Light. Like, Padron Nile is the Lord Captain Commander of the Children of the Light. And this raving lunatic has in the space of about three or four months. You don't know that from the text here, but what you can gather from everything else is that it's mm. a couple of months he has become... Like a like an advisor almost, like just like Grima Wormtongue in Lord mm. of the Rings. You know, it's it's what Mordeth did. It's exactly Mordeth's MO. It's what yes. Mordeth did in Aridol. Exactly. Mm. 
and I think it is like by manipulation and just by his presence. Like, you know, um, Peyton Fane didn't need to have the dagger with him in Faldara to affect the guards and everyone else around him, like sowing distrust and, you know, mm. like turning people against each other. I think it just oozes out of him. So I think he's got some kind of assistance, if not direct assistance, there is an effect that he exudes that allows him to slip into those cracks and like cause fissures between people and then offer himself as a better alternative mm. to this person that, you know, their target now no longer trusts. He's a, he's a little bit of a mind poison. Oh yeah. A l- just a little bit. <laughs> a tad bit of mind poison. Um, and yeah, so that's sort of come to an end and that takes us to then Caridon where he's now back into his quarters, kind of licking his wounds from his uh, uh, hard talking to by the Lord Captain Commander. Uh, and of course, he's joined by Madral, which he was looking for his servant man to sort of take out his anger. <laughs> it turned out, turned out his uh, person coming out of the shadows is, is part of the shadows. Mm. And sort of like saying like, no, no, you've got to deal with us. You're not moving to wherever you were sent now. It's like you need to go and kill this dragon. Like that's what you need to do. And uh, sort of reminding him that uh, he has got oaths to fulfill. And every month they will take one of his family. It might be an uncle or a sister or a, a child or whatever. But every month they'll keep taking someone. And when everyone's gone, they will make him know what pain is. Yeah. Pretty stark. This fade is like grabbing him by the throat or the mm. face or something, isn't he? Like mm. he's grabbed him and he's pushed yeah, him up against the wall just because Caradon is sort of resisting in the beginning saying, you know, I don't report to you. I report to mm. Shamal or whoever his master is. And this fade just makes him understand in no uncertain terms. You listen to me, motherfucker. <laughs> if you step out of line, I will cause you a world of pain. You mm. and your loved ones, everyone you care about will die at my hands if you don't if you don't toe the line and yeah. fulfill these oaths that you yeah, made to the dark. He couldn't scream because his hand basically grabbed his whole jaw shut yeah. and then at the same time lifted him up. So it was like standing on his tippy toes. Mm. Like, sorry, this is not how it's gonna work. You're gonna follow yeah. my little black law. Fades are bad ass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think they're my favorite they're my <laughs> they're my favorite enemy unit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're pretty cool. I do I do dig I've said that it. before. Yeah. yeah. And then like he scratches the table on the exactly. way out. Like he just claws along the table mm. and little splinters rolling. Just to remind Caradon every time he looks at that table, like a fade can come into the fortress of the light. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like not who let you in. It's like wherever there's dark, there we can go. Like it's the fate isn't even like, okay, I've snuck in here and blah, blah, blah. He's just walking around and doing as he pleases with one of the high ranking questioners of the children of the light. You know, it is brazen in a way that is shocking. I remember reading this in high school and going, <gasps> a fade <laughs> in the fortress of the light. Yeah, and I, I was suitably shocked back then, and it is still jarring now to see that happen. One thing I got from this chapter as well was that the original plan, why they were even there in the first place, was to capture Elmuth Plain and turn it into the new headquarters for the Children of the Light. That was his plan, uh, Pedro's yes. plan all along, and that went to absolute shit. And that's why he's pissed off with with Caradon. 
Like you had yeah. a simple task, bro. Go so Discord, take over the place, so we don't have to stay in Amadicia. You were sent to secure a piece of land that no one has claimed. Yes. <laughs> by anything other than like whispers and promises, you know, like, but no one's got troops stationed there or anything. He sent Carradin to the Elmuth Plain specifically to capture the Elmuth Plain so that then between Amadisia and the Elmuth Plain, you've got Tarabon so that he mm. could also build the influence in Tarabon and start building their, um, it, like that corner of the map then becomes, you know, a white cloak. Uh, hotbed, you know, mm. like a, yeah. like a, um, what do you call it? Like an incubator, you know, like they can really, really enforce their rule and like recruit more and like build up their power. Because you find out in this chapter that Pedro Nile has a pretty grand plan. Mm. And it's not just to capture the Elmuth Plain. No, he wants to march up to the army. He wants to be the one that fights in Tom and Gaidon. Mm. And the White Lakes are going to be victorious. And specifically his legacy. Yeah. He wants to be the one that defeats the Dark One, which I like glossed over completely as my younger self. You know, like yeah. these grand designs that he has here are almost completely driven by ego and his, his lust for a, lo- a long lasting and his uh, legacy and his, and his quest for glory. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, pretty disappointing from a character that i'd always considered like very practical the way that they um intro the chapter describing the room sets the scene of a very pragmatic practical man not distracted by you know anything ostentatious or you know like you know there's there's no creature comforts in the in this supreme office of his right it's all very like simple furniture simple this simple that just the the banners of his defeated enemies he's trophies then Yes, but then, like towards the end, you hear this other stuff about him, and you're like, "Oh, actually, this guy is a bit of a self-important douchebag." Yeah, it's it really again. I mean, this should come as no surprise to me or anyone else that like, reading it now at this age, after having read that chapter twice before mm. in previous phases of my life, is really bringing to light a lot of mm. new new um, context. Yeah, he seems pretty keen, like pretty certain as well. Like the he he knows that lose Theron sealed away the Dark One. Like there's not going to be it's not going to be the dragon against the Dark One. The Dark One is locked away. He has faith in the seals, so it's only going to be Trollocs and Fades and Dreadlords, and he can handle those. Yes. So yes. he will be the one that unites the land and saves the day at the end. Uh, yeah, he's got like yeah. some quote as well. Like his legacy will be remembered for a hundred generations or something like that. Yes, as the man who saved yeah. the world. Uh, yeah, not doesn't happen yeah. as we know. <laughs> Child Byar, so obsessed with Perrin, hey? Mm. Like, dude, let it go, let <laughs> it go. Um, he's been dismissed already, and he stops, and he just wants to make sure that Pedro Nile knows we were betrayed by a specific dark friend, Perrin Ibarra from the Two Rivers. I don't think you mentioned that Jacob Carradine also mentions the Two Rivers, but does he? No, I don't I think, think so. Might, I think it was Audith. Uh, uh, when Audith says that Rand is from the Two Rivers, mm. that sparks Niall's memory of what Child Byra said about Perrin. So when he says, oh, uh, I've heard of other dark friends coming from the Two Rivers, and that's when Audith is like, oh, is that Matram Cawthon or Perrin Ibarra? Mm. I've got a list for you. I find every prologue overly flowery. You do? Yeah, it, I, I, find it, I find it hard work. 
I like it like good. It's a good chapter, but mm-hmm. it's a hard work chapter. To try it's and- very cerebral. There's not mm. a lot happening in front of your eyes. Yeah. You know, like there's no like sword fights or anything, you know, like no, no exactly. one, you know, I mean, clashing. It's all machinations and scheming. And daggers and, and yeah. the, the dark friend social was the other one. And there's a lot to try yes. and remember and try and fish out like, who's that? Who's that? What? What's this now? And I uh, won't give you another prologue, Will. Uh, no, I no. won't give you another prologue to summarize. <laughs> I'm no. hearing you loud and clear. <laughs> Jody loves the prologues. He had uh, I have the world. I do. I do. Mm. I, this was my favorite chapter in the stretch, and yeah. that's saying a lot considering where we end up. No, look, where we end up was my favorite chapter, but that's yeah, obvious. Um, but this one, I really enjoyed this prologue um, as, because I understood it. Um, like when you first read I Have the World's prologue, you don't know what the fuck is going on, you know, as a new reader. <laughs> what? No. Who are all these people that you never hear from ever again? And then in the second one, you've got the Dark Friend Social, and there's so many different people, and they're all in disguise, and all, everyone's mm-hmm. being whispered secrets, so you don't hear what's going on. It's also, again, confusing, but this one is, this is the plan, this was the plan, this is the new plan, this is this guy, and mm-hmm. this is his you know, inner, inner monologues. And It is clear but it's not 18 pages worth of information. No, no. <laughs> well, there's, there's a lot going on here. Um, I also just realized that obviously Jacob Carradin is in both book two and three's prologues. Ah, uh, yes, Balls that's true. And, and Carradin now. Uh, but you're right, Philly. Like, I mean, Dark Friend Social is like, they throw so much at you. The Dark Friend Social is almost written for rereaders. Like, mm-hmm. and only once you know who the Red Sisters are, they're all, I say the Red Sisters because I assume they're all black, <laughs> who the Black Aes Sedai are, yeah. that, you know, you might see there, uh, you know, like uh, Inktar or whoever the Shinaran is and all that sort of stuff. It's it's more for people that, because it's it's planting seeds for stuff that's going to be revealed later. No, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's a lot of, we'll go back to this and say like, oh, yes, okay, I don't think we'll be going back so much to this prologue, um, but it's... It's not my favorite thing. No. And I mean, especially the children of the light as well, right? Like, who even gives and a I shit about them? I have a lot of disdain for them. There was only one that, that sort of tickled my fancy and now he's dead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In a stupid way. Um, Pedro Nile uh, rattles off the three oaths from the Aes Sedai in this chapter. Has anyone else done that in the books yet? Have we read the three oaths word for word? I can't remember. Mm. And I don't think so. I'm not good I for don't. remembering. I poked around on the internet, I mean, admittedly, briefly, but um, I can't remember. Someone write into us and let me know where's the first time you read about the three oaths, but it's just ironic that it would come from the White Clerks. I just took note of, obviously, Bio's intense hatred of Perrin. Um, and the conversation between Carradine and Niall, I found it so interesting and entertaining how... Carradine was just spewing forth all this white cloak rhetoric and dogma about, you know, obviously these women that are channeling are Aes Sedai. And I mean, Carradine is a dark friend. Mm. He knows exactly what is going on there. So all this glib sort of like, I know what's happening and blah, 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 you know, don't worry, you're playing it down. When what else could these beasts in the sky be other than Trollocs and Madral and other shadow spawn and that sort of stuff. So, like, Caradon is purposefully leaning on the the White Cloak's predilection for believing their own misguided lies or truths. You know, like it, it's just he he's using their biases against Nile 
which I thought was clever because obviously Carradine doesn't believe any of this bullshit that he's yeah. saying. Yeah, but neither does uh, does Padron in the end. He manages to turn it around so that he's in control and put Carradine on the back foot. He does, but at one point, Padron also says that um, he can't let Carradine know that he agrees with him about something. Uh, Carradine explains something to him about, like, what else could this be? I think it is the Shadowspawn comment, like when people spoke of the monsters that the Sean Chan attacked with. What else could this be other than Shadowspawn? And then Niall goes, maybe. He can't let Carradine know that he actually agrees with him. Yes. Okay, there was that specific line. Yeah. One thing I wanted to say about Carradine is that he has also painted himself into a fucking tight corner. Playing the White Cloak's side and the Dark Friend's side is an almost impossible, well, not almost, it is an impossible task to set yourself. I don't know how he thought he could pull that off. I mean, these are two opposing sides. Like, it's a very definite side. It's not like he's a, uh, a noble with no clear affiliation to any kind of political body or whatever it mm-hmm. might be, or like a peasant. Or any- He's a white cloak. So any, he's a questioner. So like any suspicion of him in any way, I mean, Niall already threatens in this conversation to hand him over to um, the Valder, to the, to the other questioners, you know, like any suspicion that he might cause. This is the guy that has a fade in his room in the Fortress of the Light, you know, could, could have him, you know, put to the question where, you know, someone out in the country in a manor house or something like that as a dark friend would, would have a lot more sort of elbow room in which to maneuver. So Carradine is... Fuck, he is, I don't know what his motivations are, but he is, he's put himself in a tough spot. And as we find out later, I don't know if you guys remember this, but we read about Carradine again later. We catch up with him and he is a wreck. He's disheveled. He's an alcoholic because the Fades and the Shadowspawn have been killing his family one by one. And I don't know if there are many or any of his family actually left at that point. So he has run afoul of his own dark alliance and is paying the price. Um, He's like, he is tragic. I mean, he's an arrogant dickhead from the beginning, right? So you don't really empathize with him at all, but um, he he pays the price. I was just going to say, couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. Um, okay, cool. That's it. I mean, like I, Vili, you're quite right. Like it is very dry, but I really actually enjoyed and took pleasure in watching Carradine lie to Niall's face in a way that he would be expected to. Like you don't almost, it doesn't even look like a lie until you remember, oh wait, he's a dark friend. He knows about the Sean Chan mm. and the Aes Sedai and, mm. and then, and then, and then you're like, like there's a lot of stuff that he knows about that no one else knows about. So all the stuff that he's spewing forth to, to Niall is um, a lie, a straight-up lie. Just going back to pr- the the prologue from the previous book, talking, we spoke earlier about the, um, the Dark Friend social, and there was that one Dark Friend who was covered head to toe. Mm-hmm. You couldn't see their hands and anything. Was that Lady Suroth? I'm thinking that maybe it was her because she, with the nails she was, and the hair. She was wearing an Isodai, she was wearing an Isodai serpent ring. Ah, mm. right. Okay. I couldn't remember that. I thought it, I thought at the time it was Varen because Varen is always described as plump. Yeah. Mm, so no. I thought maybe she had covered her entire body so that you couldn't see who she is from her silhouette, basically. All right. 
I remember, that was, that's I remember we spoke about that, but uh, hmm. now that you bring it up. But I didn't remember. I just remembered someone being covered completely. And I thought if it was a Sean Chan, she would have to cover herself because they recognize the painted nails and the shaved heads. That's true. She would stick out like a sore thumb. So now, I don't know, maybe, you know, I can't remember. Now you put doubt in my mind. Maybe she wasn't <laughs> wearing a great serpent ring. That's what I do. Dark friend Jody. Uh, he has a callback for next episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> About the dark friend social at the start of the Great Heights. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Enough of these white cloak douchebags. Yeah, they, they don't excite me. They, and, and maybe this is just little bit more sort of playing into the fact that they may just be a bunch of really stupid guys that band together you know mm-hmm. their safe their safety numbers so they they know where they won't make it out in the world on their own i don't think they're stupid i think they're misguided like they are still clever enough to plot and scheme and you know but they are blinded by this incorrect assumption that anything to do with the power is part of the shadow can almost draw parallels in today's politics. <laughs> I know, I know. It's ridiculous. Okay, should we... Are you guys ready? Yes. Ready to for dive, <laughs> To dive into the mind of Perrin Ibarra. Yes. Because the next five chapters are all from Perrin, which is awesome. I love Perrin. I don't know why so people do give Perrin such a hard rap, but he's one of my favorite characters, if not my favorite. People, I think, find him frustrating because he is so slow like slow to act you know because he is so considered in everything that he does everything because is because he's a beefy boy mm. <laughs> you stole my line i was about to say you guys are ready to get beefy <laughs> <laughs> okay so let's beef it up then chapter one waiting we obviously get our first uh, our third not our first but our third uh, introduction of the wind uh, mm-hmm. at the start of the book um this time, the wind originates in the Mountains of Mist, which for people with not a map in front of them might forget that these are the mountains uh, right near Eamon's Field, that, you know, the the Westwood and, uh, you know, Tam and Rand's farm are oriented towards the Mountains of the Mist, and that is the natural barrier on their, um, on their western side that prevents people from getting into the two rivers in the first place. And the wind starts there and it howls across, you know, half-buried ruins and broken monuments, which I like to assume is, you know, remnants of Manetherin. Although they say that they are all as forgotten as those who built them. So, you know, people probably have forgotten about Manetherin, but some people still remember. So I'm clinging to the hope that those are old things from Manetherin. Let me dash your hopes. That wind is blowing west, so it's blowing towards Almuth Plain. It's going the other way. It's not going to Emmons Field. Yeah, that's fine. That still tracks. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, I thought that uh, Manetherin was on the other side. I'll have to get out an older map. <laughs> <laughs> Ruffles papers. <laughs> <laughs> Don't dash my hopes, Jody. <laughs> but what I gathered from this wind also blowing up in these high snowy mountains is that it is winter. It even mentions that winter is leaving the um, the plains below, but up here it's still snowy and cold, which means that some time has passed because when they came out of the portal stone, it was autumn. Right, so we're talking about a, about a season or more since the events at Falmay. So that you know gives Peyton Fane some time to get down to Amadisia. It gives Jacob Carradine time to get back from the Elmuth Plain and the battle with the Sean Chan, um, and it gives uh, some of our friends a chance to go hide up 
in the mountains after the absolute chaos that they caused down on the Elmuth Plain and uh, on Toman Head. What is also noteworthy of their position on the map is that as the crow flies, they're not awfully far from Eamon's Field. Mm -hmm. No, they're right there. Yeah, just on the other side of these impassable mountains. But um, I thought it was cool to know that, you know, no one mentions it. Like, I, I would have thought that maybe Perrin or Rand would think, you know, oh, Eamon's Field just on the other side of these mountains. Considering how far they've traveled, you know, all the way to Sheenar and then all the way to Falme and then back to the mountains. We then join our beefy boy, Perrin, sitting on Stepper. I think this is where they mention Stepper's name for the first time. This is now his horse that he's named for his quick feet. Um, and he stays with Perrin for, I think, the duration. Like, Stepper is there in the last book, I think. So it's Perrin sitting on Stepper and five Shinarans with him, who, you know, later we find out that uh, Reagan, Massimo, and Uno are in that number. Mm hmm. Um, and they're sitting in a thicket of trees. So they're in the cold, sitting between these trees, uh, watching the, the valley below them. Perrin is sort of just thinking about how he's getting frustrated with Moraine making them wait. Moraine's obviously made them wait in the mountains now for a couple of months. And it, seem, it seems like it's an unpleasant place to, to be waiting in because it's cold and windy. The Shinarans are unfazed by that. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it's like totally. a beautiful spring day for them. Um, so Perrin is sitting there and he's absentmindedly sort of like sniffing the scents of the area and he can sense where a, a hare has just passed recently and he stops himself um, and he feels a tickling in the back of his mind that he pushes away. And this is sort of a recurring a theme through these chapters where, you know, as we know, it's the wolves trying to contact him and Perrin sort of avoiding it. And he's sort of thinking about like, you know, just sitting there, letting his thoughts go because he's wondering like, oh, I wonder why these Shinarans are like letting me take the lead, why are they deferring to me? And then we learn that they're sitting there because they are specifically keeping watch for something because Perrin is sitting with an arrow knocked in his bow. He feels the itch again and he still avoids it. Uh, and then he spots a rider dressed in bright colors coming from the direction of Tarabon. But in that moment, Massima suddenly mutters, Raven. And they all look up and they see this raven and Perrin just in one fluid motion pulls up his bow, looses an arrow, and he can hear the snapping of the bowstrings from the Shinarans as well. But Perrin's arrow gets there first and the, ball, the bird falls out of the sky and five arrows pass through the space <laughs> where it used to be, much like the rocks that Matt and Rand threw at that raven in Eamon's fields yes. way, way, way back then. Mm. They obviously do this because they know that the ravens are the eyes and ears of the Shadowspawn. And Perrin asks out loud, like, oh, I hope... You know, the Dark One can't just see everything it sees. Do they have to report back? And Reagan actually confirms that, yes, the Ravens actually have to report back to a half-man, which is cool that the Shinarans, yes. like, they know this. They are so, like, intimately familiar with the workings and the logistics of the, the Shadowspawn, which is cool to know. So they banter a bit about Perrin's bow. Reagan saying that he's impressed by it, but Massima is sort of, you know, not impressed by these huge bows. He says it looks like a club. Um, <laughs> but then Uno tells him to shut up. Because the rider is drawing nearer, right? So good old Uno, the foul-mouthed voice of reason. Perrin obviously saw this rider way before anyone else. And another recurring theme is Perrin's sort of heightened senses, you know, thanks to him being half-wolf. Um, and everyone starts to notice that this rider is actually dressed in bright clothes and must be a tinker. And Perrin hopes that she brings word that will actually finally let Moraine make them leave the mountains. So they ride up to her and Perrin introduces himself um, and she does the same. She's called Leia uh, and she says she's looking for a woman, uh, a woman sometimes called Moiraine. Uh, she has news for her and Perrin says, okay, cool. Yep, we've been waiting for you. We'll take you to her. 
And they write mostly in silence and then Perrin and Leia start talking about, you know, the merits of violence and that same old conversation Perrin had with the Tinkers back in the day. Uh, obviously, Perrin is conflicted about violence himself. Like he he is trying to convince himself that it's okay to commit it in the first place because he can't see a way around it. And the Tinkers are the ones who are constantly, you know, tugging at that string for him, you know, like saying, you don't have to do this, Perrin. You can throw that axe away. This is not the way of the leaf. Um, but they can't come to an agreement and they continue to ride in silence after that. In the distance, they see the side of a mountain carved into the semblance of two forms, like a huge man and a woman, like very basic shapes because they've been worn down so much over so much time. So, you know, even if this is not stuff from Manetherin, it could be from kingdoms way before that, from ages long, long, long forgotten. Then late in that afternoon, uh, Perrin leads them between two steeply sloped mountains where um, he starts hearing the, the bird calls that he knows are a an imitation of a bluefinch, which is a Shinaran bird. And he sort of mm. smiles to himself knowing that these are obviously the sentries. He knows that the, the, the sentries are announcing their arrival to the rest of their camp. And the passage that they're riding through is, is super, super narrow. Like the level ground that you can actually ride on is the width of a horse. The stream that they're riding next to, because there's a stream flowing out between these two steep mountains, the stream is you know wide enough for a tall man to step across. So this is a really, really narrow spot. Um, and he mentions that, you know, 50 men can hold off an army um, if they have to, and they might have to, you know, yeah. like, <laughs> alluding to the fact that they are a very, very small amount of, of people and um, they need to protect themselves against basically the rest of the world at this point because this little group of people is the fledgling army of the dragon, right? And Rand has just proclaimed himself down in Falme and then they got the fuck out of there and they went and they hid in the mountains until Moraine can sort of get the lay of the land before they leave. How long have they been there, you reckon? All winter. They arrived on um, Toman Head in autumn mm. through the portal stone. And in the beginning of the chapter, it says that winter is already leaving the lands yeah. below. So it's been at least a season. That's a long time stuck in the mountain. Feels like Red Dead mm -hmm. Redemption all over in the start. <laughs> yeah. Makes me cold. <laughs> yes, yes. They ride into like a, what is like a little mountain glade. It's like an oval-shaped bowl between these two mountains um, with the spring of this little stream on the other end. There's a couple of crude wooden huts. There's a, a white banner sort of hanging limply from a pole in the, in the middle of the encampment. And there's a, a large form sitting on a log reading a tiny book, as we know, is loyal. Min is there. She sort of starts approaching them. Um, and just then a gust of wind sort of picks up and it blows out the banner and you can see the rippling dragon and that's when Perrin turns to Leia and he says to her, uh, welcome to the camp of the dragon reborn. And that's how that chapter ends. Yeah, and she is suitably unimpressed. <laughs> Zero <laughs> shirt <laughs> leaving. <laughs> like Another like, violent man. <laughs> I do not care for him. Yes. To, to the reader, it's like, oh, the camp of the dragon reborn. And to, to Leia, it's yeah. just like, where's Moray? Uh, okay but yeah. so did you guys get anything from that chapter other than okay we know where where you know not everyone but we know where the main group is right now <laughs> yeah that's about it uh, but i think it's also probably uh morphing in with the other chapters to follow is yes. parents continuous battle with his ability to be so wolfy Mm. The other chapters throughout the series. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> but specifically these. Oh yes. I mean this whole stretch, yeah. every chapter, there's mm. a and there's a 
a consequence to that at the end as well. Indeed. Which I won't spoil. In my chapter. Not right now. Indeed. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, we'll get there. Yeah, this, this mm-hmm. pushing away, this ability of his uh, trying to deny it all the time has its consequences. Mm. Uh, and yeah, he's still trying to fight it. And it's so awesome. It's such an, I wish I had this power. <laughs> I know. But, yeah, it's it's yeah. one of the best ones in the books. Oh, totally. Doesn't the, doesn't he say at one point as well that the Shinarans are sort of like, they know about his excellent sight and his excellent hearing and stuff. Like parents mm. still trying to hide it, but people mm. seem, do seem to know about it. The Shinarans, yeah, they know, they, they accept it. I don't think that yes. they know that he's he's communing with wolves all the time in his brain, and that he's going to you know he's trying to fight you know to not turn into a wolf himself. I don't think they have the that uh, in depth understanding. The likes of Uno, the the older guys might know Elias. Oh yeah, they might. Mm. Yes, he's been mentioned. The Shinarans know as well. a great many mm. things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Much like the brown. Much like the brown. <laughs> <laughs> I'll beat you. <laughs> okay, so let's let's not dwell on that chapter for too long. It's setting the scene. Um, yeah. the, the rest of these chapters all basically mature the scene out into something exciting. So, uh, Jody, why don't you take us through chapter two, side in? Mm, side in. So this is where Perrin and Leia and the Shinarans are entering the camp, where she's suitably unimpressed, and she heads straight for Moraine. Um, Perrin heads uh, straight for the stew. He wants some meat, and he wants the meat more and more and more. He's like, oh, someone got lucky. He can smell it. There's also some sort of tubers uh, lying around a fire for the vegans in the group, but he's not interested in that. <laughs> so uh, Min, joins, uh, Min joins him. As you said, that we saw Min was approaching, and Loyal is there. So Min joins him, and uh, he asks her if she saw any visions around this uh, traveling woman around Leia, and she's like, yes, uh, she's going to die. <laughs> like, ah, oh, shit. I'm sorry I asked. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. And she says, like, she saw the same, the woman's own face uh, covered in blood floating over her shoulder. And this is, that's clear as day. Like, sometimes she doesn't know. There's a lot of exposition here again. And we go over, like, at the beginning of every book, he tends to go over again some of the stuff that we've covered previously, like, as a refresher course. Obviously, because it was, you know, when he was writing them, these books were years apart. So it was important for the reader to know. Not like when you're yeah. just binging it like us. And you're like, yes, 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 I know. Yeah, so uh, yeah. that's why, obviously. But yes, they go over like how her powers work or her gift or whatever. Uh, sometimes mm. she knows, sometimes she doesn't know what it means, sometimes there's nothing. There's always images around waters and around Aes Sedai. And around uh, Perrin, there is always violence. Uh, and that's his internal struggle again with the mm-hmm. wolves and the violence. And he, he, takes, he takes what the Tinkers say so seriously all the time. He's so defensive around them. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's because of his internal struggle as well. And they really like shine a mirror, you know, put a mirror in his face to it. Totally. But the reason um, that Perrin is interested in the vision of, of Leia dying is he actually thinks at this point as well, that could mean a possible attack on the camp. Because he does mm-hmm. ask her, like, do you know when she's going to die? And she's mm-hmm. obviously no, she has no idea. It could be today, it could be next year, but whatever. She is going to die, and there's nothing you can do about it. Even if we could send, you know, even if she, if it just happened when she was walking back to her people, um, they couldn't even do anything about it. Even if they sent someone with him, a guard, if they could afford to send somebody from their small number, mm. it still wouldn't make any difference. So there's no point in fighting it. But uh, Perrin is genuinely concerned uh, about Leia. And, uh, yeah, Min again remarks how strange it is that he cares so much about these peaceful people when he's always got so much violence around him. And that's, again, mm. his struggle with this violence. 
And just then old Loyal joins them at the fire. Uh, Mr. Third Wheel, uh, he doesn't realize he's butting in. <laughs> and uh, she and Loyal, uh, Min and Loyal, commiserate a bit about being caught up between these Aes Sedai and these two rivers farm boys. And Loyal goes off on a, another Taviran tangent. He likes his tangents. He's kind of like us. We should have him on the show sometime. Guest, yeah. Our guest today, Loyal, tangent boy. Now every episode, three hours. <laughs> yeah. um, but, uh, you know, while Mid feels like, because she, she has a moment there where she even mentions and then blushes afterwards that she wishes she could just fall in love with whoever she wants. So she's already in love with Rand. Uh, mm-hmm. she, she's not happy about it. But uh, Loyal is stoked to be traveling with Three Tavir and he is loving it. Um, he feels he's very, very lucky. But uh, Loyal's going to read, uh, read a book. He's obviously reading a book, but he's also going to write a book about his travels, which is uh, what we're going to read later on, I suppose. So up the slope, because now we're in this bowl where the camp mm-hmm. is set up. There's a river running through it and uh, fires, cook fires. And then there's all the little wooden huts that are dotted all over the place that you can't really see as soon as you enter. They're kind of hidden. And Rand's one is up way behind everybody else. He tried to hang out with everybody else, but everybody's in such awe of him at the moment, especially the Shinarans and Uno, mm. even Uno. Uh, Massimo, mm. of course, is already batshit crazy for him. It yeah. only gets worse. And uh, <laughs> so <yeah>. much worse. <laughs> totally. Um, so Rand is up in uh, right at the top of the slope there. Um, uh, he's just coming out of Moraine's cabin and the Shinarans get all excited when they see him and they, they, they're bowing and, and promising to serve. Oh, that's the dragon. We serve, we serve. And Rand just spares them only a little cursory glance then heads off into the trees. So he's been arguing with Moraine uh, again or, or still. Apparently this whole winter time they've just been arguing with her and Perrin actually mm-hmm. thinks about that. Like how crazy, how things have changed so quickly. Like he used to be told stories about how these these... Um, these Aes Sedai, these scary Aes Sedai that could bring kings to their knees. And here's Rand just, you know, arguing with Moraine all the time. Yeah. Um, how much he's grown. But it's just also his yeah. two rivers stubbornness. Like, he doesn't care who you are. <laughs> he's grown and he also hasn't. Yes. So Rand is withdrawing into himself more and more. This is the beginning of what we see of what, what is commonly referred to as Dark Rand when he goes through mm. that period in his life where he, he kind of believes that he's got to uh, become less human to be able to do what he has to do. He has to push people away mm. and, you know, that kind of stuff. And this is where it all starts, that feeling of hopelessness. Uh, mm. So Perrin decides, look, he's, you know, out of everyone, yeah, I've known in the longest, I'm going to go up and, and have a chat with him because he always needs a needs to chat with someone after one of his Moraine um, fights. So he follows him up and Rand is in his special place. It's like a secret fail <laughs> <laughs> accessed by like a half mile track through a crack in a cliff face. Like no one goes there except Rand. And once Rand is there, like no, no one else is going to go there. So Rand is leaning against a tree there, staring at the herons on his hands. And uh, he recites that prophecy that when he hears a parent approaching behind him, like uh, once he'll be once the heron to be marked and twice to be marked true and blah, blah, blah. Mm. Again, paraphrasing wildly, but everyone knows that prophecy uh, and also mentions that doesn't have the dragons yet. There's no dragons, but he's pretty sure that they're coming. He's somehow they're coming, they're mm-hmm. coming. like he's, <laughs> he's accepted it now. Mm-hmm. Uh, they chat a bit about uh, Matt, like I wonder how he is. And, uh, but Rand is seriously uh, preoccupied with his duty and is um, actually the, the duty is weighing really heavily on him. 
And what he and Moraine have actually been arguing about is, is them hiding in the mountains while thousands of these, these people who declared for, for the Dragon Reborn are fighting and dying and he's mm. unable to help them and he feels you know, like he's a coward hiding up here in the mountains and he should be doing something instead of nothing. Mm. And he has he at this moment that this this hopeless scenario of him of his and the fact that he's he's, he's helpless and he's he just starts cackling I suppose like a like a crazy person. Uh, uh-huh. This is, it's it's starting. He's a madman's laugh, and it's actually disturbing to Perrin that uh, that he's got this laugh. It is unsettling to read other characters observing it. Yes, more so mm. for me than like you know, getting the insight into Rand's thoughts, like another character observing his behavior does make him seem like a raving lunatic. Well, well yeah, totally is. going crazy. <laughs> it's happening. Yeah, he is. He is a raving lunatic with the power mm-hmm. to destroy the world. Just with a thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, yeah. In Perrin's perspective, <laughs> Worrying. though, he, he's also, oh no, that was Matt was the only one that saw him up in the boat when they were sailing the first time with Domin. Mm-hmm. Right up at the top, also cackling at the world. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Lieutenant Dan style. <laughs> Lieutenant Dan. <laughs> Lieutenant Rand. <laughs> <laughs> like that. That's the laugh I imagine. <laughs> there he is. There's Rand. All right, you got me there. <laughs> There he goes. <laughs> God. <laughs> All right. Um, we got it. Okay. We can okay. carry on now. As everybody gathered themselves. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, where was I now? Oh, yes. Yeah, so he's cackling crazy enough, though, because he, he feels his helplessness, but he knows Moraine is right. That's the this thing as well. Mm. So he knows that she's got a point, that they can't just go running out there, especially in winter now. Like, what, what are they going to do? Like, the only thing they're going to do is get killed, basically. Yeah. Uh, Perrin reminds him as well that the true enemy is not Moraine. It's the Dark One. Yeah. All right. So just keep keep your eye on the prize, buddy. Uh, and then while Rand is expressing his fears about having to face him, uh, the ground begins to shake. And Rand has his eyes shut and there's sweat beating on his face while the earth shakes and rumbles around him. Perrin is thrown off his feet uh, and he calls out to Rand to stop the sh- and, and, and abruptly, like the earth just stops and quiets down. And Rand opens his eyes and, and looks at him and, and, and he starts then realizing, oh, shit, you know, like, this is me. Whoops, sorry. Um, and he's explaining, <laughs> my bad. Saiden <laughs> uh, is always pulling at Rand and sometimes he can't help but sees it. Um, and sometimes he reaches for it and he says it's like trying to catch air. And this is where a lot of his preoccupation is coming from is like, what if that happens in the last battle? Like he's got this heavy mm-hmm. duty. He's the only one that can save the world, um, but he can't control any of his power. And sometimes when he tries, like what happened in the last battle, he tries to reach for Sidon and nothing happens and the world dies because of him. So, yeah, I mean, even without the, the taint, I think that would drive anyone mad. Yeah. What a cool anyway. premise. I'm sure it's probably like a, a common trope. I can't think of any other examples of it, but having this like savior character who is petrified at stuffing up because they have no control over this thing that they're supposed to do. There's no backup. um, No. You are really getting into Rand's um, psyche on this read through. And I mean, you you always are because you are spoon fed a lot of it. Mm. Um, But it's again, really hitting home, like just the, almost the futility of it. Like, of course he's going to crack under that mental strain. He's a 19 year old boy. Yeah. That is a, that is a hell of a lot on his shoulders. 
So, yes, and for, he a, is for a kid. He's hmm. cackling like a madman already. I mean, some kids, you know, grow up with a lot of responsibility, but not him. He had to find some sheep, nah. maybe that went lost. That's like, that's all he's had to do his whole life. I was reading the other day that uh, Robert Jordan initially wanted to make Rand's character an old man at the end of his life when he started writing the, mm. the books for the ideas, like someone who's already had a lot of life experience. Um, but obviously we ended up with, uh, with a child who has no experience. So I wonder what mm-hmm. that alternate reality would have looked like. But yeah. regardless, Rand uh, feels, feels hopeless and he feels like he's going to let everyone down and everyone's going to die because of him. So yeah, he's going a bit mad. Uh, so that, that, that's after that, that he only seems to realize now that he was the one that caused all the damage around and Perrin tries to, to get him to come back to camp. But Rand's like, no, no, I'm just going to stay here and be moody by myself a little bit more. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, before Perrin leaves, he just asks him about his dreams. And we get a little insight there as to that Perrin is, is warning his dreams now, or it's, it's just, it's just because of his connection with the wolves that they're automatically warded. I wonder if he's actually physically, you know, consciously warding it with wolves. Surely not. He wouldn't know how, right? Yeah, but previously, I mean, from previous the previous book, he had that dream where suddenly he saw Hopper. He was surprised mm. to see the wolf there. I think we, like he had a number of dreams and there was always a wolf there sitting with their back to him. I don't know if it yes. was Hopper, but there was. And then in the one dream in um, Mistress Lewin's kitchen, yeah. Shamal rocks up and sits sets the wolf on fire <laughs> like, yeah. you know breaks through whatever that ward was but at least he's got wolves in there looking out for him and we know that Perrin becomes incredibly powerful in the yeah. wolf dream yes uh more so than than anyone else really more than Egwene. there's actually a scene again i read recently doing some research about where he deflects balefire with Egwene yeah. next to him i think it's uh, and he does it like one it's of nothing and she's shocked yeah and he's he like, just like bats it away and he's like no it's just a weave you know like, yeah and she's like, what? Yeah. 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 <laughs> anyway, so um, is Rand, are his dreams watered at this point? I think Moraine might be trying to do something, but <laughs> as some of these chapters will um, show, not very effectively. No. Anyway, that's yep. that's where the chapter ends, basically, with uh, Perrin heading back to get some food and uh, Moody Rand staying behind with his deep, dark thoughts. Yeah. I thought it was cool how um, it describes Rand's channeling, how Rand would be like the patch of ground that Rand was mm. standing on would actually be changing orientation wildly, but Rand doesn't. Almost yeah. like his sense of gravity is in relation to the patch of ground he's standing on. So no matter how the ground's moving, Rand is standing perfectly still. Like he's not having to like correct and balance or anything, which would look amazing. <laughs> Did you guys know? I mean, maybe I'm a light blinded fool. But um, I didn't realize that Loyal had like full on run away. Like, yeah. I always knew that he was young to leave the setting and everything, but he never outright says that he had run away. But in this chapter, I think he actually says it. Or someone we, says it. We found that out in book one, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, man. From the start. Yeah, he, he's a, he he's left a without permission, but that's running away, <laughs> I imagine. I so guess. two different guess. ways I, I, you could say it. Well, he left without their blessing. So he in, in the, the night. night. <laughs> I mean, obviously, <laughs> obviously, loyal. Whenever telling the story, would play down the uh, the severity the, of his actions. The severity of his actions, for sure. Definitely. But um, I don't know. Just he just in that moment in this chapter seemed to me like a runaway kid, more so than he had before, yeah. which is what he is. Totally. 
a 90-year-old runaway kid. All right, Vili. Chapter 3, News from the Plane. Take it away. There's uh, not a hell of a lot in this chapter. <laughs> it's, it's a chapter that can be summed up quite simply. Rand broke some shit. Mm-hmm. Um, Perrin makes his way back to their makeshift camp in the what you would imagine sort of a cove is, but the landscape has changed and rocks has fallen down and trees and everyone is shaken up and dusted up. Like they've literally just survived an earthquake. Mm. And Moraine had to do some healing because trees fell onto cabins and he's trying to convince her that it's not that bad. Just, you know, he's, he's trying to figure things out, trying to downplay it, but mm-hmm. they've all got dust on their faces and men of the, a good something to say about it. And then, yeah, that's really, I think there was a bit of emphasis there about Leia. He just didn't want anything to happen to her. And she has, do they mention here that she fell over or something and that she is bleeding from her head head? Yeah. She, but she fell over and bumped her head and head wounds do bleed. So this is the red herring making you think, Oh, the prophecy has been, or, you know, men's viewing has been fulfilled. At least that's what Perrin thinks. He's like, oh, okay, cool. This can account for Min's viewing of seeing mm. her bloody face. Yep. But Min, in her viewing, had said this means her death, and she doesn't know how she knows that. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, from that is he's smelling the stew pot burning. Min's not really happy about cooking. Uh, she herself <laughs> is a, a little bit dusted up. And Lan moving around in his making you want a vomit coat because of mm-hmm. how it blends into the dark. And uh, yeah, that's from there. It's uh, back to sleep and into dreamland. This, <laughs> I don't have a great deal of adventure in this. Is this where Perrin also sees someone approaching? Because it's nighttime now. So it's late mm. and it's dark. Um, he sees someone approaching, but he has to not mention it. So that people don't wonder, how's he seeing that person in the dark? Yes, he holds back the whole time on his wolfiness. It's, yeah. uh, you can see them coming. You can smell them coming. You can smell the food the whole time. It's like a lot of this is just Perrin's own little perspective of world in his yeah sort of things he's going through, his own little inner strife. I think Leia says to Moiraine that the White Cloaks seem to be pushing back the um, Domani and Tarabona sort of uh, forces that are still present in the Elmuth plane. But what she's noticed is that they don't seem to be approaching or even touching the people that are proclaiming themselves for the dragon. Mm. That is right. And uh, the only noticeable other news was that boys were being killed in uh, villages of, you know, the same age of Ran and Perrin and them. There was so, yeah, that's people... Wanted- yeah, that's obviously people, or is it obvious that people are freaking out about the Dragon Reborn and killing young men that even remotely match the description mm. of those pictures? Well, I thought it was maybe the dark, uh, not the dark friends, the uh, children of the light, but I'm not so sure. That goes directly against what Pedro Nile mm. said they must do in leaving Rand alive. Uh, but this other bit of news about them not um, attacking or approaching groups of people that have proclaimed themselves for the dragon, uh, Leia has noticed, and people are talking about it, that um, the White Cloaks are suspiciously uh, non-active against those people, which is 
obviously a direct result of the orders from Peter Nile. So it's already happening. All right. So that uh, prologue must have been a while back since the news and the orders has arrived. Mm. Caradon would have had to be able to get back to the Elmuth plane and relay that. Already start uh, starting that plan. Which, uh, in some way, potentially, probably can't, can't or contradicts his orders from Ishamayel. You know, like, what is this guy doing? <laughs> so his fucked. orders are to kill the dragon reborn, and the other orders are do not touch the dragon reborn. He like, is uh, so fucked. Yo. Good. You, you want to, you know, fuck around, then you must shit, you know? <laughs> Deal with the devil. Yeah. Buy the ticket, take the ride. Yep. Well, I mean, he. He made his own little bed for him. He needs to sleep in it. Yes. And he will. Speaking of sleep, should we move on to the next chapter? Yeah. That was so fast. All right. Chapter four is called Shadows Sleeping. So, parents gone to sleep and he is now standing in the common room of an inn. So, obviously, parent is in a uh, dream shard or a the world of dreams, the wolf dream. And um, I think specifically the wolf dream. And uh, there's a couple signs that things are not normal. There's no heat coming off the fire in the fireplace, which is something that we've seen, you know, in those palace spaces that Ishamayel was having darkwing socials and stuff. Uh, the table shapes are changing, you know, like they're round first and then they're square later. But importantly, there's a, a man sitting in the back of the inn at a table sort of shrouded by, by shadow. And uh, he beckons Perrin to come over. And Perrin seems to think that he's familiar, but he can't place his face. He's dressed all in black. He's got lace, you know, coming out at his neck and his cuffs. Uh, he's a middle-aged man, handsome. From the description we're reading here, it's clear that it is Ishamayel, who we have now twice thought has been killed. <laughs> and I'll be honest, at the end of the Great Hunt, I thought he was dead. I thought this was it. And he's coming back as Moradin next time. But here mm. he is, alive and kicking. He, when he's talking to Perrin at times, he sort of holds his chest, which uh, Perrin thinks makes it look like it's uncomfortable for him to move, which, you know, you would, is the very least you would expect after having a power wrought sword, you know, plunged mm. into your heart. Um, so, you know, here he is, Ishmael. He asks Perrin if he'll give up, give up the axe. And um, in that moment, Perrin again feels the, the murmurs, you know, in the back of his mind. Uh, but then comes out of it and he says, well, I have thought of it. And Ishamal here says, your hands were made for a hammer, not an axe. Mm. And I think what he means here is that Perrin should be a blacksmith and not a yeah. warrior. But as we know, Perrin makes an awesome hammer later <laughs> and then uses yeah. it to crush skulls and, yeah. you know, shadow spawn. It is... Uh, uh, I remember when Perrin switches from the axe to the hammer, I was sad because I liked the fact that he was fighting with an axe, but mm. the hammer is somehow like even more brutal. Yes. A war hammer. I've always been waiting for that and I always thought it happened already in sort of the first book. I thought in what I could have kind of remembered was I thought the where the white locks take him and Egwin, uh before oh, that no. was then like I thought that's when he threw the axe away. Well he talks about it. Mm, he talks about it there. That's when I thought that was when it's no. going to happen. I think it's book nine. It could be, yeah. Like it's on his search for for Fael, and he he throws it. I think at some point he, he throws it and it sticks it sticks in a tree, and that's where he leaves it, and that's the last we see of it. Write that down because we're gonna <laughs> when the actual <laughs> scene happens, we'll see how far we are from book nine. <laughs> so far, I I'm, I'll bet against myself. <laughs> 
Um, anyway, back to this common room in the dream world. Uh, Ishamal offers Perrin a drink and Perrin declines. So again, this idea, like this is what he did with Rand back in the Eye of the World. Do you remember in that inn where Rand, all the broken backs of the rats and stuff, mm, we were yeah. sort of trying to think like what this means. So he offers Perrin this drink and Perrin says no. And this seems to anger him. Um, and Perrin just leaves. And as he's leaving, Ishmael is just sort of like speaking these veiled threats about tying your fate with that of the Dragon Reborn, you know, like with someone else, you will be cut down as easily as, the, as he is just by being around him. Um, but as he's left, he suddenly finds himself standing in front of a mirror, uh, looking at himself, wearing like a really ornate set of armor with a lion's head helm. And um, he has his axe with him again, and he's again just conflicted about having the axe and, you know, the violence that it represents. And then enter the most beautiful woman Perrin has ever seen. And you can pretty much at this point just assume the most beautiful woman ever seen. Okay, this is Lanfear. Okay, yep. so Lanfear is now in his dream. And in typical Lanfear fashion, she fills his head with talk of glory. And uh, she also offers him a cup of wine, which he also declines. Is this the first time Perrin has anything to do with Lanfear? I Be- think so. Yeah, because he wasn't with uh, Rand and Loyal and Huron um, when she was around. No. And she never, never made Celine. an appearance in anything when they joined up again. No. Only Min saw her and then Rand, Huron and Loyal. Mm. And Uno and a couple of Shinarans as they're traveling through the villages caught a glimpse yeah. of her. Yes. So after he declines the, the wine, she just sort of, you know, says she says to him, okay, whatever, you know, I will always be in your dreams. And she walks away because Lanfear has sort of set up shop in the world of dreams, right? She claims that mm. as her own domain. And then Perrin's back in his old clothes and he's feeling more comfortable, you know, like not in this ornate set of armor. Um, and he seems to be standing somewhere resembling the ways, but dimly lit, not completely dark like it was in when they were traveling to Faldara. And I immediately conjured the image of like, this is a similar area to where Rand was again, running away from Bishamal in his, in his dreams, you know, across Mm. the bridges and the, and the ramps and that sort of thing. And then he sees a motion from the corner of his eye and it's a flash of white and he thinks it's a woman, Uh, obviously Lanfear skulking about in the world of dreams again. All he knows is that he should hide and that he should make himself hard to see. And he doesn't know why, but he does. And that's when he notices two men, appear on a bridge and approach each other um, along the bridge and they seem to be start starting to argue uh, one of them is quite tall dark hair graying at the temples at first i thought oh yeah here's ishmael again but then like um, a lot of talk about his his clothing uh, and the other man that comes the other way is you know silver haired is wearing red and black um, seems shorter and squatter but um, and older but not frail at all um, and we learn later that this is um, Ravin and Belal. Mm-hmm. And they are sort of arguing against each other. And then a third man arrives and it's the guy in the black with the lace at his cuffs and his, and his mm. throat. So this is then Ishamal. And when he comes over and he starts talking to them as well, the other two seem to sort of uh, stand together against him. Mm. Uh, but soon that conversation devolves into all three of them literally shouting at each other. Um, and at one point, Shamal just spreads his arms wide, almost to stop the conversation and just fire just erupts from him. And Perrin takes cover behind the wall to shield himself. And when he looks back, there's a big gaping hole in the middle of the bridge and only the, the sort of footings of the bridge remain. And the three men uh, are nowhere to be seen. But when he looks up, there's a ramp close to him, like up and to the right, and there's a wolf standing on it. 
and parents shouts, no, this is a dream. I want to, I want to wake up. And he sort of, he runs away. And I said runs with like a weird emphasis because uh, the world starts blurring around him. And this is very much reminiscent of how he started learning how to travel really quickly in the wolf dream, right? Like he sort of projects himself forward and everything blurs around him. It's not like a blink and he's somewhere else. It's like, it's a blurring. So he's moving himself. I want to use the word physically, but I don't know what the fucking metaphysics of the wolf (laughs) dream is, but like flash when he runs super fast. Yeah. Yeah. Perrin is the flash, the end. (laughs) There you go. No, but he ends up in um, in a in a hallway or in a big hall, not a hallway, but like a big dome ceiling hall with massive redstone columns, um, and the the ceiling is like fifty spans above him, and the the floor is uh, these you know great stones that are worn really really smooth through ages of of wear, and we recognize this obviously as the heart of the stone mm. here. We who have read the story, um, we know what this is. So in the middle of this of this domed, um, almost cathedral-like space, which, you know, the, on the cover of the old book is, you know, this, this picture. It's those redstone columns within floating in midair, this sword made of crystal slowly revolving with the hilt pointing down and the blade pointing up in just such an enticing manner, right? Like who would not want to walk up to it and reach out and take it? Um, and Perrin does do that. He he goes up to it and he reaches out to take it, but his hand is stopped, you know, in midair, about a foot away from the hilt, and he just can't press forward. There's some invisible barrier um, pushing him back. And he thinks he can actually hear a whisper saying, Kalandor, who wields me, wields destiny. Take me and begin the final journey. Which is cool, you know, it's cool sounding. <laughs> it's a cool little thing for some, uh, dis, you know, disembodied voice to be saying in that room but who would be saying that the sword itself is it you know a weave that was put on it to the magic of the sword is talking entice people to it is it it's not it's not lanfear we know that she knows rand is luce theron and therefore the dragon reborn so she Mm. would know that parent can't take the sword Mm. but do the other forsaken know that i'm the sword whispers that to everyone doesn't it I don't know. I was thinking that because we've now had a glimpse of Belal um, mm-hmm. in in the ways. Belal has set himself up in tear. I know because of the internet. Um, not because of your own memories. <laughs> absolutely not. When I read the description of the, the man, I recognize Ravin, his, his description. Yes. Uh, but the man approaching, I thought, was Samael, <laughs> not right. Belal. Um so my my memory is super foggy. I mean, I remember now there is a bit of a showdown, I think, with Belal at the end of this book, but I can't remember exactly what happens. But I'm wondering if this is maybe Belal also, you know, being in the world of dreams, which we know he can do because he was there just before in the previous space. Um, is he also sometimes just in the Stone of Tear and any of the the boys or anyone that comes in there trying to entice them to see if he can make them reach out and take Kalando? Because whoever does take it is obviously then the Dragon Reborn. Mm. Um, thereby identifying themselves. But I would assume he knows by now that it's Rand. I Unless think they all know. they're forsaken. Well, they're so insular, right? Like Lanfear, mm. you know, like keeps all his secrets to herself. Shamal keeps all his secrets to himself. Maybe they are literally not telling each other who the dragon reborn is. <laughs> I mean, that is, that is not outside the realm of possibility. Well, they, their level of infighting is ridiculous. They're all trying to one-up the other it's one. It's legendary. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> anyway, this is, this is, I only thought of this now. When the three of them are on the bridge fighting, arguing, are they arguing about what's coming in the next chapter? Like whether or not to kill Rand? What are they arguing about? Maybe. Perrin yeah. doesn't hear anything, so we don't know as readers. But, I mean, yeah. it's also not weird for us as re-readers to see the Forsaken fighting amongst each other. So it's yeah. hard to to pin a specific thing in it. But it would, it would definitely have to be with either how they handle Rand hmm. or Ishamayel trying to throw his weight around. Because I think it's only later that he is officially made Nablus. Mm, yes. Until then, he is just Ishmael who has, or Ishmael who has had uh, more access to the the world outside of the boar than any of the other Forsaken. Like he's been in and out for centuries. I'm just wondering who sends who sends those Madral and Trollocs to attack the camp. It's got to be directed by a, a Forsaken. Someone ordered it. My guess would be Ishmael. Just because he's got pieces on the board in Ulmuth Plain. He's got Jacob Carradin there. He's got um, Leandrin working with Suroth and mm. the, um, the Sean Chan. Just because of pure geographic <laughs> proximity, you know, like I'm assuming he has forces deployed in that area, probably doing all sorts of stuff. Now go look for Rand now that you're here. Mm, and Lanfear doesn't want Rand dead. No. Um, so anyway, so Perrin steps back from Kalandor frightened and he... Um, he then remembers that he's actually been here for the previous four nights. Like he's been coming to this place or he's been drawn to it. Um, but he's never heard that whisper before. And then finally he hears the twisted ones come. And then he actually sees the wolf. And it's a shaggy mountain wolf, which would be native to the mountains of mist where the encampment is back in the real world. And then he hears again, the twisted one comes and he claws himself out of sleep and he comes awake but then he still receives the sending and crystal clear. This is not like a memory from a dream or anything. He is mm. now awake and he's getting a sending from the wolf saying, the twisted ones come, brother. And that is such a cool moment where like he's been pushing, he's been pushing them away this whole time. And still, when they do get through to him, immediately it's brother. Goosebumps. Mm. Yeah. It's, I got it's so really, excited really there, I knocked cool. the pop filter off the mic. But <laughs> <laughs> I saw. <laughs> But it's so cool, like, oh, they get through, and it's like, the twisted ones come, brother. Yes. And knowing what comes next, that line is also just like, oh, yes, Perrin and the wolves, you go. Ah. Yes. So did you guys want to say anything else about the wolf dream, or should we just get straight <laughs> just into the, the main event Next here? chapter. There is, it's, it's a great dream um, that's uh, filled with a little bit of plotting. but uh, And four forsaken. Well, yeah, four forsaken. And how does he have? Because they don't. I don't get the the take that he's initially Ishmael, Ishamahal, and him maybe lured into the dream, but not Lanfear. Like it's weird. Like how does he get all four of them, and gets to see them all? Like is he just unknowingly maneuvering in the world of dreams? I think he's just falling around blindly, like not realizing what he's actually doing. He obviously doesn't know what he's doing. Obviously. Um, but that he just has happened to come across them. Perrin doesn't know that this is anything but a dream. The concept of the world of dreams is unknown to him. Mm. 
So yes, he is just he's just stumbling upon them. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in the story, not just in the world of dreams, about like being drawn by need. Um, you know, like the eye of the world will find you based on your need, that sort mm. of thing. Like I think there is he is Taverin. So the pattern is also, you know, being woven around him in such a way to place him where he needs to be at the right time. So in this space where, you know, reality is fluid the pattern can literally resolve around him where he is suddenly at this focal point where Lanfear is eavesdropping on three of the other Forsaken. Like, you know, he is Taverin and therefore he is also there. Mm. Um, he, it's certainly not conscious. I mean, he's, he seems to have even forgot, like lost memories of the real world in the, wolf of, in the world of dreams. You know, like he doesn't recognize Ishamal, even though he had appeared to him in other dreams a number of times in the eye of the world, albeit with burning eyes. Yeah, he, he tried himself maybe be someone else. Ishamal's demeanor in this dream is also way different. Mm. He's not menacing, well, not really. You know, he's there, so he just looks like a middle-aged man. He's not, you know, roaring furnaces behind his eyes and his mouth. You know, the way he talks to Perrin, like, just go be a blacksmith. Don't do this thing. You know, save yourself. Move away from the Dragon Reborn. Maybe he's just trying a different tack because these two yeah. boys are so goddamn stubborn. <laughs> They've killed him twice. Rand has killed him twice now. Like, your no. old plans are not working. Time to, to change, no. to change uh, tactics. Yeah. All right. Chapter 5, Nightmares Walking. Take it away, Joe. The Twisted Ones Come, Brother. Perrin leaps out of bed. He's not wearing no shoes or nothing, Jesus. And he sees <laughs> dark shapes. <laughs> Ain't nobody got time for that. <laughs> this Rand is back. <laughs> okay. I'm good. Okay. Go. All right, good. So he sees dark shapes moving through the trees. And he opens his mouth to shout a warning to everybody. But just then, Lan bursts out of the hut and screams, Trollocs, wake for your lives. And Trollocs charge out of the trees and there's a clashing of steel and shouts of Shinar and the dragon reborn and all fucking hell is breaking loose in the bowl of the dragon. So Lan is fully clothed. He was, I don't know, just awake. <laughs> he doesn't sleep or he's just always ready to fight. Um, I think All of the above. All of the above. I also thought that maybe um, uh, Leia. Was it Leia? Mm-hmm. Like Princess Leia, Princess. I only realized, mm-hmm. realized this right now. Um, Leia was using his bed because she was also in the hut with Moraine. So he oh, was right. obviously, he left his bed for her. So he was fully clothed. Mm-hmm. Some soldiers are absolutely buck naked, fighting for their lives with uh, their swords and nothing else because everyone was, was asleep. And Lan is fully clothed there and dancing between the forms. Uh, another great image for the brain. Love it. Love it. Moraine is also dancing her own dance and she's throwing fireballs and setting Trollocs on fire. She's also got a switch in one hand and she's using it like a magic wand. And every time she slides, like makes a slashing mo- uh, movement, one of the Trollocs sets on fire or has like a, a fire slash across his chest. Um, there's also random trees catching fire spontaneously all over the place, which we find out <laughs> later on was, was Rand, but we'll get there. Perrin sees Leia step out of Moraine's hut and I'm like, God Damn it, woman, why would you step out of the hut? <laughs> what is she doing? She's not going to fight. So anyway, she's out of that. He sees her across the, the, the bowl and he tries to shout to her to hide, but his voice is just lost in the noise of the battle. Uh, just then a trollic looms over Perrin and slashes, but he ducks. He's very nimble for a beefy boy. 
But he ducks mm. and he strikes with his axe and the Trolloc dies screaming. Uh, to him, it's just an obstacle in his path to, to get to, to Leia. So uh, he sees across from the bowl again, he sees a Trolloc going for her and he rushes to attack. The Trolloc turns its attention to, to him and swings at him and Perrin ducks again, but he gets uh, cut across the back in this occasion. But a real W2F moment here. As he's sliding and ducking, he grabs the hoof of the Trolloc and tugs on it and rips a Trolloc off its own feet. Now, that is insane. <laughs> this, I mean, a Trolloc is twice the size of Perrin, like how strong he must be. And also, I suppose, adrenaline and all that kind of stuff. But man, that's an impressive move. The Trolloc just swung at him, so it could be off balance, you know. If the Trolloc is swinging in one direction and Perrin is dashing in the other direction, if Perrin is moving quickly, he's a beefy yeah. boy. He's got he, some momentum behind him. He can. He does. I will allow this. <laughs> I will allow it. He grabs the hoof and then pulls the legs out underneath this, uh, this Trolloc and they trip and they fall and they, uh, the Trolloc falls on him and puts him into a bear hug and he's crushing him. Perrin can hear his ribs cracking. And they're rolling down the side of a, of a slope or a hill or something into the middle of the bowl there. And while he's getting his ribs crushed, the, the Trolloc is a, is a goat one and bites into his shoulder as well. Pain, of course, everywhere. Like, oh, oh it's, it's, it's no good. Uh, he manages to free his axe hand during this, this little roll and he drives the spike of the axe into the Trolloc's temple. So awesome fight scene here, man. Loving it. Yeah. Yeah. And again, in my notes, the, you know, as it goes on, the, the, the handwriting just becomes illegible uh, with <laughs> intensity. <laughs> so just bear with me. As he, he looks up and, and Leia is still crouched outside the hut. And I'm like, you fucking just get inside the hut for the love of God. <laughs> and he looks up and he sees her crouch, crouching there. And then a, a madral jumps off the roof of that hut. And it recognizes Perrin. So our earlier question was like, do the, the Forsaken know who the Dragon Reborn is? If a Madral knows who Perrin is, then I'm pretty sure that the Forsaken know who he is and know who, know who oh, the Dragon Reborn is. Shamal, they know does. all three of them are. Yeah. Remember, they, the okay. image has been in yeah. the Dark One social. Um, and I, I yes. assume all the Forsaken mm. must have been there. So they must know the three boys. Some of them might not just know which one is the dragon. And Ishi knows the deal now. Mm. Old Ishi. Yeah, because, I mean, the Madral says, cut one leg of the tripod and all fall down in his voice like mm -hmm. a snake crawling over leaves. Um, yeah. The Hrillerach. So suddenly, Leia uh, tries to rugby tackle the Fade, which is a bizarre move. I don't mm. get this woman's For motivation. A For a tinker. I mean, she like tries to tackle, grab his legs of a fade, but the fade just casually backhands his sword and, and kills her instantaneously. Like with, with like, not even like an afterthought, you know, just like get off me, yeah. like, you, you worm. Is there anything easier for a fade to kill than a tinker? <laughs> tinker hugging his legs. Um, yeah. No, thanks. So anyway, uh, he casually kills her with a, with a sword and the Madral stare has Perrin frozen, but Perrin's like tearing up in his eyes. He's, he's, he's got the pain of just seeing this woman die and the, the, the Madral stare has frozen him. But just then he hears, we come, brother. We come, young bull. Oh, and mm -hmm. scores of wolves flood. <laughs> Here we go. Hold on to your butts. Scores of wolves <laughs> flood into the bowl. Uh, and there are mountain wolves like from the dream 
tall as a man's waist and they fill his big mind. Wolves. Big wolves. These these wolves don't fuck around and they fill his mind and his eyes shine golden yellow and the half man hesitates and mm-hmm. in his advance he, he sees Perrin's look change and Perrin says fade and then the wolves word takes over and he screams never born and just throws himself at the fade. And the fate is quick, but Perrin is is one with the force now. He is one with the wolves. He is a wolf. He is a wolf, man, totally. And he follow, follows the wolfish way, which is hamstring and throat. And the fade is only being pushed back and only deflecting the blows. Perrin is just charging, hamstring, throat, hamstring, throat. And Perrin drops to one knee, which is a common move, it seems, between it seems these, two rivers, these two rivers folk. Uh, drops to one knee, slashes it behind its, uh, behind its knee, and as it screams mm-hmm. and stumbles, but before it can even recover, Perrin chops its fucking head off. Kind of half chops its head off. It's still yeah. clinging with a bit of flesh, but it flops backwards uh, off his mm-hmm. shoulders. But it's enough. It's enough, and yeah. the trollocs that it's linked to scream and, and fall down around him. So, like, I yeah. have to take a break at this point. This mm. is Breathe. Heron, River Undercuts the Bank, behind mm-hmm. his knee. Mm-hmm. It is brilliant. It's, it it's a, is fantastic. It's so cool how, you know, like the Fade is used to looking at humans and mm. paralyzing them with fear. The, you know, most humans, 99.9999% of them yeah. are just completely incapable of resisting this look of fear from the fade Mm. but the wolves are completely unaffected by it they are so like they are dead set they will do anything to kill a fade like i mean they'll kill trollocs all day long but they just throw caution to the wind when it comes to a fade to the neverborn i should say yeah yes Um, and so perrin inherits this it's almost like an immunity yes to the 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 gaze Mm. of fear and the fade is like oh fuck yeah, hundred <laughs> percent magic yeah. resistance. Yeah. Bah, got you exactly. <laughs> you called my bluff. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and that 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 look changes in his eyes when his eyes start glowing. A de- like I, I imagine that his eyes glow a brighter yellow when the wolf's yeah. uh, when he becomes the wolf, and the mm. fate notices that that fear disappear from him. Yeah, um, yeah and shits his pants. <laughs> he moves over to 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 Leia to hold her and like turns her over. Um, and he's holding her in her arms, and then he, he gets another sending from the wolves. Come kill the twisted ones, and it, it overtakes him completely. He puts her back down because now he is young bull, and he charges down the rocky slope. He's got no shoes on, remember, um, and he's in his breeches, um, and it's just, he's ro- he runs down this rocky slope with his blood-slicked axe in hand and, and joins the fray. He, as he gets down there, Lan is fighting another fade, uh, Loyal is there with his quarterstaff. It is just absolutely destroying Trollocs. He's got the circle yes. of nothing around him where any <laughs> Trolloc that enters dies. And uh, there's a bunch of men fighting as well. Let's not forget that just regular people there too are trying to fight. <laughs> and the wolves are in the, in, the, in the place as well. They're fighting in small packs, but there are many Shinarans that are, that are down and out for the count. Perrin has to fight the urge to drop his axe, axe and run on all fours and start biting Trollocs with his teeth. <laughs> so he has to like hold himself back from the wolfiness. And then just uh, abruptly, there are no more Trollocs in the bowl. And Perrin can see the wolves uh, in his mind chasing a fade as it tries to escape. So I'm, I'm counting three fades. One that mm-hmm. 
that he killed, one that I su- assume that Lan killed that thing. <laughs> it's this Lan Probably. we're talking about after all. Or it could be the same fate that's run away. But a third one then that's running off in the bushes um, mm. and the wolves are after it. And this is where that line comes in. Like you, ta- you say how they throw caution to the wind. Um, yeah. Like a, a wolf will, will, you know, ha- will die a hundred times over to kill a fade. Like they'll sacrifice any number of them to kill one of yeah. these neverborn. Well, maybe the wolves also know you, you kill a netherborn, you kill all that he commands. Yeah. Anyway, so they manage to kill it, actually. They do. And yes. there's actually a scene after they've killed it that there's, uh, there's just corpses of wolves around this body of this, uh, of this fade. Like they, they sacrificed a lot of wolves uh, mm. to kill it. And there's one surviving wolf that climbs out of the, the corpses. Like that's all mangled and but still alive and, and it's a she-wolf and she howls into the air and Perrin howls too morning mist is her name mm. morning mist but that's not quite her name is it <laughs> no no <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> uh, morning mist yes and then Perrin howls too and just then Min, Min is at his side and she's like are you okay and he stops you know he kind of snaps out of it and he looks around and like every, the mm. battle is over and everybody's just staring at him now like when was it <laughs> a couple of times back that we had this whole conversation about to stop himself from howling out loud in front of people when Perrin was leading the Shinarans and mm. he was following Fane's scent yes. he thought that he might have been standing in the middle of the camp just howling <laughs> and now he has done exactly that he is literally standing in the middle of the camp howling um, with the wolves mm-hmm. and he looks down at Min and Min is there with a cudgel in one hand and a dagger in the other, and there's blood and hair on both. And this chick is fucking badass. <laughs> she has a bruise. That's all she's got. She's got a bruise on her yeah. cheek, and she's got blood and hair on her weapons. Like, wow. Yeah. I don't know what they teach you in Berylon, but I want to go there. Yeah. yeah. Growing up in the streets of Berylon, pretty rough. <laughs> <laughs> Take down some fucking Trollocs with that kind of training. So uh, he regains his humanity. He's starting to come out of it. And everyone is still staring at him. And Lan looks at him and says, you fought well. And then raises his sword and, and shouts, Taisha, Manetherin, Taisha, Andor. And what's left oh. of the Shinarans join him in the shout. Oh, dude. Yeah, it's so, so good. <laughs> goosebumps, bro. When you know that a, a fade is like a one-for-one match with a warder. Yeah. And that Perrin has like, you know, just come so far already and like embraced his wolfishness and killed a fade and land recognized that. I mean, after after Rand kills uh Turek and Ishamail in the skies above Falme, Land gives him a nod. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's fine. Here he raises his sword to Perrin and it says, True blood of Manetherin. You know, it is yeah. such a such a badge of honor to get that rec- recognition from Lan. Yeah, and all the other lances as well. Yes, and they all like join in in, in the shouts for him. And Loyal's in the background, just goes eh, to Viren. Like, <laughs> what, <did you> ex- <laughs> what did you expect? Of course, of course. Uh, Masima going completely bazonkers again. Thinks that this is a sign. He's like, this is a sign uh, that confirms our faith in the Lord Dragon. That the wolves fight for the dragon. And Uno immediately just, oh, shut God. your bloody mouth. <laughs> shut the fuck up. <laughs> God, I love Uno. And Uno (laughs) is untouched. Yeah. (laughs) Uno Uno doesn't have a wound. No. Listen, Uno's been doing this a long time, people. Uh He's only got one wound. He lost an eye. He lost an eye and he's learned his lesson from that. No one was going to touch him again. 
So Uno mentions that uh, you know at least they'll have uh, wolf hides to keep them warm now. And Perrin's like, Ooh, no, no, you he will didn't. not. Gives him this golden <laughs> eye stare, and Uno, uh, Uno's like, oh, okay, fine, 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 we won't. And they decide now they're going to burn them with the other dead, you know, like with the honored dead. So after this, they're like, well, where the where the fuck was Rand this whole time? So they head up to where Rand is. Rand is sitting on the on the side of the bowl there, uh, staring at nothing, hugging himself, kind of like rocking back and forth. I've got a whole uh, the crying game in the shower scene, hugging himself. I thought of the old WWE wrestler, Mankind. I was not a WWE <laughs> fan. Can't help you. Okay. <laughs> oh god we've broken billy again that's <laughs> rand i'm hearing rand i'm not gonna sleep tonight oh man you're gonna hear my cackling all night long <laughs> so yeah the problem was that rand couldn't control Sidin during the attack he tried to help and he was the douchebag that was setting all the trees on fire uh, because he was trying to burn all the trollocs and all the fades and all he could do was set trees on fire um, yeah. And so he felt useless um, and like, he caused more harm than he did good during this battle. And it's just reaffirming his fears that when the shit hits the fan, he's going to fail. So this is not yeah. a good moment for him. So yeah, that's why he's hugging himself. Uh, and also the wound on his side has opened up again. That mm. is also why he's hugging himself. Um, and then after he, after he set all the trees on fire, of course... Uh, he had drawn so much of the one power that then the fight became internal and he had to stop himself from bringing the mountain down on everybody. So while everybody was fighting for their lives, he was having this whole internal struggle, trying not to kill everybody and himself at the, in the process. So it's yeah. not, it's not looking good for Rand at this, at this point no. in time. So, yeah. Um, and he says, he mentions to, to Perrin at this point as well, like he felt them coming, like he felt the shadow spawn coming. He, he didn't know what it was at the time, but he, he feels guilty that he didn't say something and warn people in time. And Perrin has the exact same thought because he mm -hmm. has the consequences to him trying to fight his wolfishness. He felt that itch the whole time. The wolves were trying to warn him that they're coming and finally broke through in the wolf dream. But he also feels guilt for not letting the wolves in because he would have known sooner and maybe, you know, could have saved some people. Yeah. But anyway, so both of them, there wrapped in guilt. This is the moment that you mentioned where he doesn't say anything until they're close enough because Lan and Moraine are walking up behind uh, him. Okay. He mm. hears them and smells them coming a while like back, but he waits until they're close enough for other people to see them before he says, you know, their names yeah. he, before he, he mentions anything. Um, so they heal Perrin. And I thought this was very cool because this is the, the most visual description I've ever had about healing. Yes, this mm -hmm. is actually, I took note of it as well exactly this was very cool like it's not just magical like uh, there's a light on his back or something and then when you look again it's healed but you can see the muscles rippling under the skin and not knotting themselves back together and the flesh closing like it's a very physical um process you know like what's happening internally with the one mm. power of course is is invisible to us but the actual result on his body i thought was very very cool and i, mm. I didn't it's remember that wolverine yeah basically it's even better than that because the cut is deep and the muscles knotting mm. back together and stuff like I thought, yeah, that's rad. Yeah, and and Moraine mentions that uh, she even healed some of the wolves. That some of the wolves that were injured, they they scampered away before she could get there. But she made she did her best to help some of them. And if it were not for the wolves, they would all be dead. Like it was, mm, yeah. it was hundreds of wolves. That was amazing there. for me. I I love that that uh, she was able to, or she said she tried to, or was able to heal some of the wolves. And yeah. she spent after that though. Yes, because she is, yeah, 
uh, spent is the, is the word. Rand's wound has reopened. And she kind of hisses as well at light. Like there's a lot of hissing from Aes recently. Perrin is all like, more <laughs> and yeah, so she's re- she's really spent, but she has enough power left in her. She tries to heal Min as well afterwards, and Min's like, no, 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 just leave me alone. And she's like, oh, thank God, <laughs> I can go lie down. <laughs> and while she's healing Rand, like she, while Rand like you know shows her the blood on his hands that his side is opened, he quotes the prophecy like, and his blood mm-hmm. will be spilt on Shail Ghul, and he makes a joke like. Why don't you just take me there right now so that I could spill my blood on the on the mountain and then all of this will be over, you know? And she's surprised that he knows that line from the prophecies. Mm. Did she not tell him or was that Varen again? Hmm. Hmm, deep thought. I'm trying to think because there is a viewing that Min has about red blood on black rock. Hmm. But I don't think she either tells Rand about it or that the connotation to Shail Ghul is that obvious. So I don't think it's from Min's view. No, because he quotes it. He quotes the line yeah. from the prophecy. It's not uh, my blood on the rocks or something. He doesn't paraphrase as much as I do. He literally quotes the line. So, And she's surprised is why I'm surprised. Didn't I thought she told him. Well, she may have taught him along the way. You know, it's been, it's been several months. Maybe it happens off screen. Maybe he's been talking to Loyal. Loyal now knows he's the oh, dragon reborn. Yeah. Everyone knows, you know, Loyal's a font of knowledge. Mm. Maybe Moraine herself in that time has told him. And then why is she surprised? She says, where did you hear that? Does she? Okay. Yeah. Hmm. So it wasn't her. I just assumed she would be telling him stuff like that. But then again, these Aes Sedai don't tell you anything you need to know. Might not maybe Tom? <clears throat> Tom, Tom does quote it. Mm, he does quote hmm. quite a few things during his talk with the boys in uh, Eye of the World. Also in Kyrian, he actually mm. quotes the Carathian cycle, but not that line. I read the the, the pronunciation of that. It's the Carathian cycle or something. Oh, <laughs> I still can't get Pull it back right. for next episode. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, at this point now, so she, Moraine has healed wolves. She's healed people. She's healed Perrin. She's healed Rand. And she finally just collapses. Rand grabs, like Rand catches her, but then Lan is there within seconds to scoop her up. And um, there's a there's a moment of self pity here from Rand, mm. but basically Land tells him to just man the fuck up, um, <laughs> stop yes. stop moaning, and Rand's like, no, look, I know my duty and I will do my duty because no one else can do it. And Land looks at him just a little bit and then like nods his head and is like, all right, okay, fine. Yeah. Um, and that that resignation kind of replaces hopelessness in Rand, yeah. and and that's how the chapter ends as, as Land carries Moraine back to her to her hut to go and have a little sleep since there's no one there to help her. Yeah. Land says to him, pull yourself together, sheep herder. The whole world rides on your shoulders. Remember, you're a man and do what needs to be done. Yes. Man the fuck up. (laughs) Yes. That's rough. That's heavy going. Yeah. The fate of the world rests on your shoulders. (laughs) Deal with it. Suck it it up. (laughs) Yeah. Oh man, what a cool fight! What a yeah. cool scene! Everything that cool. fade jumping down from the top of the log cabin without its cloak like flapping in yes. the wind would look amazing as well. Man, yeah, I'm all sweaty. I'm gonna have to have a shower after this. <laughs> What's <laughs> <Go> new? Lie down. <laughs> oh, what a great chapter! Thank you, Moritz, for distributing chapters and giving me this one. This made my day. <laughs> <laughs> Did you guys remember to pick a favorite moment? Yes. 
Yes, I picked my favorite moment from this book and also from the entire series. Whoa. <laughs> it's not in this book, though. <laughs> oh, God damn it! No. <laughs> but I'll keep that for when it appears and at the end of, uh, in three and a half years' time when we finish this podcast. Okay. All right. So what is your favorite moment from these specific six chapters? Well, I just read it. Um, I know you did. Yes, you know I did. It's, it's an easy one. Look, there wasn't much. Um, the prologue was great, but it's not my favorite moment. Um, no. Definitely my favorite moment is in general the whole Perrin being a fucking badass, but specifically mm. Lan saying Taishama Netherin to him and the, uh, the okay. whole that recognition of his, of his power. Okay. And his... Whoa. It's so satisfying. It's so satisfying. <laughs> These books are like crack. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't know, Moritz. <laughs> Vili, what is your favorite moment? The entire chapter five. The whole thing. <laughs> it is one moment. That is one moment. I mean, it's it's not an hour. It's, it is a quick moment. No, it's moment. over pretty quick. Yeah, it's yeah. a quick mm. moment. Baron, barefoot, just him and the axe. It's brilliant. My, we spoke about this when I read it the first time and mm-hmm. we were still working in a nice old thatched roof surf shop, mm-hmm. good old J-Bay, and we spoke an entire day about it. <laughs> I can go on forever about these books. I can talk about them and pick them apart forever. And um, I actually remember that conversation that we had, Will, about this. And it was great. I might as well come out and say it. My favorite moment is Perrin killing a fade. Um, just how fades have been built up, you know, even in these chapters as being like the confrontation with Jacob Carradine, you know, like just reinforces that um, supernatural nature of them. They are, you know, like vipers and they are cruel and evil. And they've got this unfair advantage that their their gaze, you know, freezes everyone in fear. And it does actually freeze Perrin at first. Mm. But when the wolf takes over, it's just it's completely irrelevant. And the Fade recognizes that. And then Perrin does kill it. And Land recognizes that. And, you know, it is just, it's so delicious. <laughs> yeah. There was an honorable mention from Adrian, uh, who said her favorite moment was the twisted ones come, brother. Yes, which yes. you know is goosebump-inducing. Yes, uh, my own honourable mention is you know those wolves chasing down that fade and yes. all dying and like even in the act of dying, still biting at it and clawing at it and like you know that one lone wolf crawling out from the pile of wolf corpses over this yes. fade corpse and like howling and mourning the dead. Like the imagery is just incredible. The the um. The dedication that the wolves show to killing the shadow spawn is, you know, inspiring. And yeah, it's just everything in this chapter is <laughs> fucking gold. This chapter is my favorite moment. Like everybody's everybody's favorite yeah. moment. Yeah, no, you called it, Philly. All of chapter five is yeah. favorite moment. Even Loyal there, he is keeping a clean circle around him. The, the length of that quarter staff is no one gets in there. Yeah, no, it's, it's it's as thick as a man's leg or something, or what was the description of the book? Anyway, mm-hmm. it's, it's massive. Rand's forearm. Yeah, just smashing Trollocs he's, to death. He's smashing them with a tree stump. And it's whirling. So he has, um, he has some skill with the quarterstaff as well. Like, he's trained. He knows how to use it. Yeah, he's not just swinging a stick. Yeah. He's wielding a quarterstaff. 
Because also when he was in that uh, other alternate reality, he sung wood, he sung a quarterstaff specifically. Yes. Because he felt uneasy. Yes. yes. So, so was, he chose, that's his weapon of choice. Like he a has. weapon, yeah. yeah. So th- is that the same quarterstaff? Because I thought he lost that one. I don't think so. Can't remember. I think he left it behind in that world. I think, yeah, he might have left it behind or lost it. Um, be easy enough for him to get another one. He is yeah, in the woods. trees around. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Would he have sung himself another one? I don't think he had time. He just grabbed a branch, ripped it off a tree, and started smashing Trollocs in the face. They've been there for months, yeah, so he's hiding probably... out in a tinderbox. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's not unheard of for him to have a weapon. Yeah, and also like steep hills, maybe he just made a walking staff that could be used as a weapon as well. There you go, problem solved. Mystery cleared. If anyone has an opinion about the nature of Loyal's quarterstaff in the beginning of The Dragon Reborn, please send in your comments to us on Twitter at Blood and Ash Pod or to any of the social media links in the description of our show. Um, something I've never asked anyone to do, but I think would be a good idea, is that if you have any friends that have read The Wheel of Time or are at least interested in it and might not even know that there's a show coming, get them to reread the books, but importantly, get them to listen to this podcast. Uh, we want you guys to participate, so do send in those comments. Get your friends to do the same thing. And next time, we will cover chapter six called The Hunt Begins, which made me do a double take because are we reading huh? Great Hunt again? <laughs> yeah. What's going on? See now. Uh, to chapter 11 called Tarvalon. The mind races at what these chapter names could be. Um, I am just champing at the bit for the Matt and Gallad and Gowan scene mm-hmm. at Tavalon. It must be this book, right? If he's getting there to <laughs> get healed, be. it must be. It because is. it's immediately after it is. he gets healed. It is. I remember that. Amazing. I thought that was in book four. But, that, you know, memories. <laughs> nah. <laughs> yeah. What we think means nothing. <laughs> it is just after he's healed. And he's yes. still sort of weak in the training yard for the waters. Mm. And we best them with the quarterstaff. Mm. Delicious. Juicy. That's that's mm. what I was actually mm. thinking of when I said my favorite scene for the whole book, for the whole series. Oh, really? Is that scene. I remember years ago when you tried to get Craig to read the story, you sent him that chapter and he read it and he came back with like, oh, that wasn't that great. And you were like, <laughs> what? <laughs> because he has zero context. <laughs> Can't just start there. <laughs> no. I remember where I read that chapter. I remember listening to music. The music was perfectly in time with what was happening. I was in the apartment that we shared when we were studying together, sitting yeah. on the couch in the lounge. I like the whole scene, the whole of my surroundings, the music that was playing, everything. Surreal. Amazing. Well, on that positive note, we will call an end to this episode and we will join you all again next time. So cheers, gentlemen. I'll see you then. Adios. Ciao.